As festive holidays near, entertain family with good cheer from the Southern Foodways Alliance Guide to Cocktails. Editors Sarah Camp Milam and Jerry Slater consult their cocktail cabinet to bring you over 100 recipes for liquid refreshment. Envish Bot of Snack Bar in Oxford, Mississippi offers recipes for cocktail bites. Pick up your copy today and buy one for a friend. There's a link at southernfoodways.org where you may purchase the book. While you're online, consider making a donation to the SFA. Donations fund all our work, including this podcast. The Georgia coast is a beguiling mix of marsh and beach and woods known as the Golden Isles. Some say that a golden light forever shines on the marsh reeds and on the people who live among those reeds. The signal dishes of the area are golden too. Shrimp swaddled in buttery stone ground grits. Low country boils bobbing with corn and potatoes. Prolific squash and okra crops. Watermelons that grow as big and heavy as boulders. So this is watermelon gazpacho. So um, we peeled the watermelon, we made the gazpacho. So we do a salt brine overnight with the watermelon rind. And then tomorrow we'll start making pickled watermelon rind. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Matthew Rayford's family has farmed the Georgia coast since Reconstruction, since the era of the 40 acres and a mule promise. Today, Matthew and his partner, Jovan Sage, farm and run a restaurant called The Farmer and the Larder in the port city of Brunswick. That restaurant delivers on a kind of agricultural and culinary trifecta. At Farmer and the Larder, they spearhead the local good food movement, nurture community in a region that's often dependent on tourists, and honor the legacy of black family farmland. Today on Gravy, reporter Rose Reed goes home to Georgia to talk about labor and love, to revel in the work of one couple, their restaurant, and their historic farm. Um, welcome to At Our Table, our Thursday night uh, opening up, doing little short little menu things for the community and uh, having little small gatherings. We only do, we do one seating. Um, and we don't do any more That's Matthew Rayford. He up. and his partner, Jovan Sage, are the creators and chefs behind The Farmer and the Larder, a one-room restaurant off of the main street in downtown historic Brunswick. Um, the baby zucchini and the mashed red striped potatoes will come out. But make sure you save room because our third course is a little bit of prickly pear ice cream um, with uh, cinnamon French toast. And the prickly pears, uh, we actually... Uh, have cacti on the farm, and I don't know why my grandma lived around the house with them. I think um, your mom may have something to do with right. that. Right, but my mom was the She's one. The cactus whisperer. Right, is the cactus whisperer. So we have cactus to prickly pear cactus all over the place. So Matthew Rayford's family has farmed the same land for six generations, and today Matthew relies on Jovan Sage, his romantic and business partner, to help him farm that land and run the restaurant. People talk about being. Uh, oh, I work with my business partner and we're in love and da-da-da. And I'm like, okay, that's great. It ain't the food industry. There is no like where Javon can go, well, you know what? Me and my girls, we're getting ready to disappear for a week. And I'm like, uh, and who is going to take care of that 100-foot row of herbs that you just planted? And she's like, you are. 
The Farmer in the Larder is open Thursdays, Fridays, and the weekends to accommodate their farming. Inside the restaurant, the atmosphere is warm and the decor is simple. And the wood tables are made by a local craftsman. We do not want to be a caricature of farm to table. table, We're farmers. We have a farm. However, 100% of the stuff here does not come from our farm and never will. Unless we get about a million dollar investment and we have about a million workers out there all like farming and doing all of it. Right. So (laughs) there's a lot of work. Matthew met Jovan through his work with SAFON, the Southeastern African Americans Organic Network. Matthew has been an activist in the network, which provides education and training to small-scale and underserved farmers in their communities. They talk about historical crop rotation and practicing organic before there was ever even an organic certification. When Jovan and Matthew met a few years ago, they were living in different cities separated by a thousand miles. And they were also separated by over a decade of age. But they had a compatibility right from the start. Um, You know, for me, my background, you know, from um, being a community organizer, electoral organizer and doing running nonprofits is also kind of we have that same kind of work ethic um, just when it comes to, I guess, you know, quote unquote justice. You know, the thing is about Matthew is that. When he gets into his work, he is serious, like head down, like eyes on the prize, like he's got a mission. He's going to see it through to the end. In the state of Georgia, the restaurant industry is a big employer and generates billions of dollars a year. Yet there's not equal representation of African-American business owners, given that African-Americans make up more than a third of Georgia's population. You know, in entrepreneurship, those who are successful are those who carve out a niche that makes him different and sets him apart from the competition. That's Dr. Frederick Opie. He's a professor of history and foodways at Babson College, and he also has a podcast on food. But you got to do the best job possible, and you got to do it in a way that's different, that people will come to you and say, you know, you can't get this anyplace else. Dr. Opie focuses on entrepreneurship and African-American foodways. He's particularly interested in drawing connections between African-American foods and cultural practices and their West African analogs. He places Matthew and Jovan's entrepreneurship in a long tradition. It shouldn't be, oh, wow, this is new. It's, oh, wow, we've been doing this for centuries. It's a thread that runs through the history of people of African descent in this country. Would be these entrepreneurs that would sell whatever they produced and then they would take what they uh, what they sold and do one or two things or sometimes multiple things they would do. They would purchase a brick and mortar building to either have a boarding house or a restaurant or a bar and tavern uh, that would advance their entrepreneurial endeavors. And they would purchase themselves, their children and loved ones out of uh, captivity, out of enslavement. So being an entrepreneur had many things, uh, had many meanings for them. Matthew Rayford and Jovan Sage each had role models in entrepreneurship in their families. You know, I can take it all the way back to being eight years old. Um, I grew up in the farmer's market. My grandfather had a market stall in um, the Kansas City um, downtown city market, which is a year-round market. Um, He had one of the stalls on the inside. He had this... um, uh, brass and jewelry business. So he would mix oils. Um, he would go over to Africa and he was like one of the first shea butter uh, importers. And so I would work the counter, you know. So I I already grew up kind of with the entrepreneurial, you can actually run this on your own. 
um, and figuring out how to, you know, how do you game the system knowing that the system is corrupt and knowing that the system is against you? And I grew up with that thought process. We knew, we both knew that other people had the notions that we probably wouldn't be able to do this. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying? So that, that from, when you walk into one. something. Yeah, from, before so from before day one. day one. So when you walk into a situation like that, it wasn't us that thought that we couldn't do it. It was really us knowing that there were other people that were going to either put up roadblocks or do things that weren't or try to persuade us that we shouldn't. So let, let me let me throw this out. So I am 49 years old with with locks. Matthew points to the hair that's neatly tied back, dreadlocks that go down past his shoulder blades. Javon has locks also. So even here in Brunswick, we have the jerk shack, which is two doors down from us. We have had people walk inside our space, pick up our menu and go, so who owns this restaurant? And I go, we do. And they go, oh, I thought y'all were the jerk shack down the way. That's why I thought that, that, that wait, y'all own this restaurant? It shouldn't be a surprise to see an African-American owning a restaurant. Again, that's Dr. Fred Opie. Owning a restaurant or sitting on a tractor. And some of these tractors would look like, uh, you know, like three-story buildings. But it shouldn't be a surprise to see an African-American owning and operating that farm and owning and operating debt-free. But Matthew says people were surprised and even doubtful when they heard that he and Javon wanted to open a restaurant. When we got ready to do this, open this restaurant, everyone came to us and was like, I know you guys are trying to do this on your own, but I really think y'all should try to find some investors. And when you say everyone, you mean friends, family, friends, colleagues? Family, colleagues, just random, random, business, random people. business people were like, the restaurant industry is hard. You know, I know you guys are thinking about opening up something small, but I really think y'all should have and some you, kind of back. you shouldn't do it in historic downtown Brunswick. And then, yeah, and you shouldn't do it in historic downtown You should come do it on the Brunswick. island. Come, come on St. On Simon's. Island. That's where all the money is. You know, no one's going to come off the island to your restaurant. You're just not going to be able to, to maintain it. And I was like, mm. For Javon and Matthew, it was very important that their restaurant be in Brunswick and not on Jekyll or St. Simons, the more resort vacation-based islands. Matthew feels that his roots, his family roots, are in Brunswick. He and Javon are dedicated to being business owners, chefs, entrepreneurs on their own terms and in their own community. We actually sat down with the small business directors that were here, that are here in Brunswick, Georgia. We sat down with them. We, we gave them our concept. We built out a business plan. We built out, built out a financial projection. And even they said, who helped y'all do this? Javon and I did it. And they were like, oh, my God, you guys are so spot on. They even said, I really think you all could build this out a little bit more. And I said, we could, but we're not. So the number that they came up with that we should hit, we actually doubled it in our first year. That we could have allowed other people's preconceived notions about what we could do here to kind of derail us a little bit. After the break, we learn about the land where Matthew Rayford grew up, the farm he left, and what drew him back.
Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned business in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, has been making cast iron cookware since 1896. Lodge Cast Iron Camp Dutch Ovens are the first choice for campers preparing meals over a fire. Their skillets and griddles are perfect for searing steaks and roasting vegetables at home. And professional chefs from Atlanta to Los Angeles stock their kitchens with Lodge seasoned steel skillets and griddles. No matter what or where you cook, Lodge makes pots, pans, even griddles just for you. For over 100 years of meals and memories, and for Lodge Cast Iron's support of this podcast, we say thanks. So where you're staying right now is a midway point of our property. Matthew Rayford's family farm is located about 20 minutes from the coast. It's deep in the woods of Brunswick, Georgia. He takes me for a walk along the property, and I ask him to tell me the story about his ancestor who bought the land right after the Civil War. Yeah, so Jupiter Gilliard, born 1812 in the Carolinas. It was well known for uh, African-American men in that particular time, black men, to be named after Greek gods. He was a iron worker and woodworker. So he kind of had like, he was like this dual tradesman kind of guy. Um, and he made his way down to this area, um, around 1871, 1872, I think. So about five years after the Civil yeah, about War. Five, five years after the Civil War. In those days, um, you, you found a piece of land and you carved it out. Jupiter bought the land, 476 acres of land, um, in 1874 for $9 in taxes. He paid $9 in taxes and had to swear allegiance to the union that if anything was to happen, that he would not sell the Confederates any food, provide any provisions for them. Today, less than 1% of all farms are owned by African-Americans, compared to 1920 when 14% of all farms were Black-owned. The other thing about that particular area of Georgia is it was along the, the Rice Coast. That's Dr. Adrienne Petty. She's an associate professor of history at William & Mary. She's done an extensive oral history project with over 300 interviews of Black farmers and their descendants. The Rice Coast, and there weren't that many African Americans who owned land right during the early years of Reconstruction, but there were various avenues and routes that they could take to obtain it. The Rayford family was one of those families that was able to do this relatively quickly. I think that their story shows persistence, great persistence, especially since they are in that coastal area of South Carolina and Georgia where there has been so much tourism and so much land loss as a result of the extensive development of those areas as vacation destinations or retirement destinations. As Matthew and I walk the property, I notice that there's a schoolhouse. It's a one-story brick building. It almost looks like a small church. I learned that this is the schoolhouse that the Rayford family built for its own community. They had to cede one acre of their land to the city of Brunswick to get permission to build a school for black children. Matthew's great-grandmother led that effort, and he tells me about that process. So before before we could a uh, schoolhouse could be put on the property, we had to give up an acre of land for that schoolhouse to go on to, for a one-room schoolhouse. Even with the additions to that schoolhouse, it still only puts it at 955 square feet. That school was strictly for black folks. 
Did nobody else go to that school from 1907 to 1955? So you pretty much walk through the woods to get to school. We still have some of the school books that they had in this original house where they're talking about slavery from the standpoint of the demise of the South and the demise of Georgia is because of the fact that we lost the Civil War and we should have kept the damn slaves. That was in the history book for the African-American students, the black people that were here. 1907, so less than 50 years later, the history is being taught from the standpoint of y'all really shouldn't be getting no education. The big myth is that they were not only a landless class, but a class that was really responsible for a lot of economic and environmental degradation in the South. Again, that's Dr. Adrian Petty. I think the story of um, African-American landowners shows their great persistence um, toward a goal and the interest in community building and building a home and um, establishing a homeland. That's Those are some of the themes that came up again and again among the men and women who we interviewed. And Matthew Rayford and Jovan Sage, they fit that mold of um, men and women or extended families of just women or extended families of just men working together toward a common goal and using a variety of strategies, entrepreneurial strategies to create a livelihood for themselves, but also to foster a sense of community. That's very much in line with what I see among um, Black farm owners. So our ancestors who were successful as farmers and as entrepreneurs and restaurant owners, these are people who did the stuff. Uh, they, they were the tortoise, not the hare. Again, Dr. Fred Opie. They expanded their businesses. They bought more land when they could afford to buy it cash. Spending time on the Rayford farm and talking to Dr. Fred Opie and Dr. Adrian Petty, there are resounding themes of independence. There's a strong calling to both protect and build on family legacies. So even though we have, it's, it's kind of homestead-like now, you know what I'm saying? Because we live out here, our food comes from out here, you know, all of that stuff. And so that's what it was originally. And I'm just making sure that we keep it that way. Before I take my leave of Matthew and Jovan and my Georgia coast, I take my family to the weekly community dinner at the Farmer and Larder. We arrive before serving has begun, and we walk in on an informal meeting. A group of restaurateurs and slow food activists have gathered, and Matthew is speaking. Um, and look at where I come from. Um, my family's land um, that we've owned since 1874 we still have the original sugarcane press that came to that farm in 1919. That is Matthew Rayford keeps his family sugarcane press on the property as a physical homage to the farmers and entrepreneurs that came before him. And today, Matthew and Jovan carry on that tradition of determination and innovation with their seasonal menu, sustainable farming, and most of all, investing and building in the community of downtown Brunswick. We have a very large community of people that we don't need to try to just figure it out on our own, but we actually have people that we can pick up the phone and connect to. As I finish off my second helping of prickly pear ice cream, I look around the restaurant to the community table, and I take it in. The food, the wine, and the company is quite good. We're so glad that we came.
Rose Reed is a frequent SFA collaborator, you may follow her on Twitter at Rose E. Reed. Gravy thanks Jovan Sage and Matthew Rayford and his family. We encourage you to head to Brunswick and take a seat at their community table or visit their website, farmerandlarder.com. Gravy also thanks Emily Kennedy and the Reed family. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milan. And our intern is Robin Miniter. Go to our website, southernfoodways.org. That's where you'll find photographs from Rose Reed's research. While you're there, consider a donation to the SFA. Your gifts make gravy and all other SFA media possible. One more thing before you go. Please remember, make cornbread, not warm.